This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this, the third and final installment in the Carsey Wolf Center's 2021 roundtable, Winter Roundtable series, Media, Technology, and Politics Under Pressure. My name is Tyler Morgenstern. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Film and Media Studies at UC Santa Barbara, and I'm also a Programming and Communications Assistant with the Carsey Wolf Center. Um, and in that capacity, it's my great pleasure today to serve as moderator for this afternoon's discussion, The New Ethereum. Reality, featuring Dr. Marisa Duarte from Arizona State University, Dr. Shannon Mattern from the New School in New York, and Dr. Rahul Mukherjee from University of Pennsylvania. Before we begin today, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that even as we gather virtually, we nonetheless gather on Indigenous land. UC Santa Barbara was built upon the villages and unceded lands and waters of the coastal band of the Chumash Nation. The Chumash people are composed of the descendants of indigenous peoples removed from their islands of origin, Limu, Anyapak, Wima, and Tucan, what are currently called the Channel Islands, who were subjugated by five missions during Spanish colonization of the Central Coast, from Malibu to San Luis Obispo and inland to Bakersfield. We would like to take this opportunity to ask everyone gathered for this event to reflect on how the work we do to here today and every day in our various departments and chosen fields affects these lands and the peoples of these lands. I particularly invite fellow scholars of film and media studies to consider how our discipline might more fully account for its role in perpetuating colonial ways of knowing and seeing, and how moreover we might dismantle these same structures and tendencies. My sincere thanks to Mia Lopez for her invaluable assistance in creating this acknowledgement. Mia is campus representative of the Coastal Band of the Chumash People and Cultural Resources and Education Associate with the Wishtoyo Chumash Foundation. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to make just a few remarks that will hopefully clarify for everyone here today how this event took shape and the kind of questions we plan to tackle in our time together. So several lifetimes ago, in the winter of 2020, I had the great privilege of leading an upper division undergraduate seminar here at UC Santa Barbara entitled Wirelessness, and all credit for that title goes to Adrian McKenzie, whose 20, uh, 2011 book of the same name has been a great influence on this conversation. The aim of that class was to trace the cultural, technical, and political history of wireless communication since its emergence as a commercial medium in the latter part of the 19th century, paying particular mind to how narratives of industrial innovation and individual genius have often worked to obscure the highly contingent and very uneven ways in which wirelessness has developed as both a mode and an imaginary of communication. In conversation with my students, I came to be extremely fascinated with how contemporary conversations regarding emerging forms of wireless connectivity, 5G mobile data networks in particular, resonated with a longer history of what we might call ethereal speculation in the media industries. And in this history, the idea or the very notion of wireless communication is as likely to provoke celebrations of techno-scientific knowledge, industrial grit, and practical reason as it is to animate fantasies of connectivity that verge on the metaphysical, the spiritual, and even the occult. It struck us, me and my students, that the situation was much the same today. 
as telecom giants like Verizon and T-Mobile roll out their new 5G networks, making great shows of their technical and engineering prowess, they nonetheless persist in making strong appeals to the almost mystical powers of what was once called the luminiferous ether, often representing wireless signals as glowing threads or filaments that float weightlessly overhead. And at the same time, these new systems get wrapped up in sprawling conspiracy theories that see extremely high frequency radio waves as among other things, vectors of viral transmission and levers of political control. So given these resonances and given as well the ongoing pandemic, which reveals on the one hand, how dependent we are on wireless ICTs, and on the other, the forms of inequality that still structure and constrain the possibilities of wireless connectivity, it seemed appropriate to use this last roundtable to home in on wireless specifically. And so our task today is to think about, uh, is to think about the wireless past such that we might better understand its contested present and look beyond the cycles of industry-driven hype in the hopes of gaining a more nuanced picture of what wireless looks like feels like and politics like in a variety of contexts. So with all of that said, I'd like to invite our panelists to the screen and ask them each to introduce themselves briefly and to address how the theme of today's roundtable intersects with their own research. So Marisa, Shannon and Rahul, very glad to have you here. And I wonder if we might begin by having you all introduce yourselves and just your, your stake in this topic, your interest in the theme, and sort of how your research intersects with this. So um, maybe we could begin with Marisa here. My name is Marisa Lana Duarte. I'm a member of the Basquayaki tribe, and I'm also um, a researcher, assistant professor of justice and social inquiry at the School of Social Transformation and Arizona State University, which is in Tempe, Arizona. Um, I am trained as an information scientist. I was a librarian for some years before, you know, I went on to pursue a, um, a PhD in the professoriate. And my work has very much been about how native and indigenous peoples utilize digital technologies toward resistance, toward sovereignty and self-determination, mostly focusing on native North America and very much centered in indigenous practices of science. So I wrote a book in 2017 on um, how uh, uh, sort of success cases of tribes who've built their own internet infrastructures uh, across um, Indian land in the United States. And I'm slowly, very slowly, <laughs> very slowly <laughs> working on a new one right now that's looking on uh, border infrastructures and how they affect indigenous families across the line, um, sort of trying to identify um, where our sense of well-being um, emerges from and political agency when we're living under infrastructures. I don't have the right words yet, but I'm super happy to be here. Great, thanks so much. Shannon, why don't you introduce yourself next? Okay, hi everybody. My name is Shannon Matter and I am in the Department of Anthropology at the New School, but I am actually trained as a media scholar and design, uh, design, I work in design studies. And uh, I have, um, I think, a number of different kind of connections to this theme, one of which over the years I've considered how we can develop uh, design projects or public pedagogical strategies to help to illuminate or to make sensible um, immaterial uh, structures, immaterial infrastructures like wirelessness. Um, I also, in my 2017 book, which is called Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, have a couple chapters where we're looking at how wireless, immaterial, seemingly ethereal things have material impacts on the way cities are designed 
mind and experienced. And then I think it was almost two years ago now, I wrote a piece about 5G in the infrastructural imaginaries and promises and values that are inherent in all that we presume that this new telecommunications kind of um, uh, um, uh, epic will bring about. Great, excellent, thank you. And Rahul, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Hi, uh, Rahul Mukherjee, I teach in the Cinema and Media Studies program at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And my work uh, has been around media infrastructures for some time now. Uh, also thinking about energy and media infrastructures together in a book that I wrote about environmental controversies around uh, nuclear reactors and cell towers, uh, with most of the case studies uh, situated in India. Um, and I've been trying to also, <laughs> as Shannon mentioned, uh, thinking about the kind of material immateriality or immaterial materiality of, uh, of cell towers or wireless infrastructures in general, and particularly also about uh, how certain kinds of infrastructural imaginaries um, kind of uh, work with alongside uh, kind of national imaginaries um, and energy futures and sort of visions in, in a way of, of where technology is taking us are not taking us. Um, so that's where I am. So I'm delighted to be with all three of you. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. So in preparation for this round table, uh, we reached out to each of you and asked you if you could share a piece of writing, either something, a piece of your own work, your own research, or something from another scholar or some other piece of work that you consider germane to the topic that we could use to kind of develop a shared set of reference points or a shared body of work that we could sort of depart from for today. So I wonder if we can begin, if you could just each share a little bit about the, the piece it is that you chose, why you chose it, um, and what it is about that text that reveals kind of your stake or your interest in this topic or why you think it's germane to the conversation. So. Why don't we go in reverse order for this? Rahul, you can start us off here. Yes, yeah, so I picked up uh, Ghislaine Thibault's piece, uh, Wireless Pasts and Wired Futures. And I uh, like that piece because as I was uh, working on my sort of uh, looking at, you know, some of the uh, kind of debates around cell antenna signals, but particularly about cell antenna sighting, I was kind of interested in the kind of looking a bit historically. And uh, Thibault talks initially about how there was this kind of in New York City, with uh, electric wires and telegraph wires, um, a lot of consternation and, and anxiety about whether the wires are gonna drop onto the streets. Um, and so a kind of moment where wireless was a way to get out of the wires to some extent or limit them to some extent. Um, and that to me sounded interesting because as, as I sort of thought about most more recently walking in Manhattan and thinking about how cell antennas have become kind of eyesores and they kind of camouflage it with other kind of you know, brick and other kind of ways in which they're made to sort of disappear. So it seems like even with the kind of somewhat compared to say electric wires, a more limited um, materiality of sorts with cell antennas, they still seem to have a kind of uh, uh, an aesthetic component to them, uh, so on and so forth. So, so that got me interested as to how how can I sort of think through this. Also, particularly um, in that piece, Thibault talks about this um, possibility of thinking about energy and media infrastructures together, or actually being able to transmit not just wireless signals per se, but also. Uh, kind of uh, the possibility that you know, talking about Tesla and this possibility of um, being able to kind of transmit electric power uh, over the air 
And, and that, again, seemed fascinating to me because I was actually, as I told you, writing about something which was both energy and media infrastructures together. But, but also what, what it suggested to me, at least, was that there was this kind of all-encompassing thing that one could sort of was wanting to do through, through wireless. And, um, and finally, just that, as we've been already discussing this, what kind of materiality is wireless? And I think um, there's this discussion, right, where it's not just a movement from materialization to dematerialization, but a move to from materialization to etherealization, uh, kind of the topic for today, where etherealization is not quite just a dematerialization, but actually it allows for a different kind of materiality with all kinds of aesthetic, spiritual uh, forces kind of coming together, social aspirations and imaginaries coming together. So the force of all that kind of leads to a certain kind of projection of certain kinds of anxieties and visions on, on what is wireless, what is that spectral aspect. So, I mean, thinking just also very spectrally about the electromagnetic spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I found that piece so fascinating for so many reasons, but precisely this, like the, the notion of etherealization, not as about the disappearance of a material form, but the emergence of a new configuration of material and physical reality. And um, the and I was also struck by that discussion of wires, wires everywhere, and the, the panic over the the obtrusiveness of wires. I was thinking about my own research on the history of wireless communication in the Hawaiian Islands and uh, late 19th century and early 20th century press reports of these massive new wireless stations that were being constructed on the islands. And in the press reports, they are replete with these descriptions of wires, wires everywhere, right? Wires as far as the eye can see in the form of antennas and various other kind of material aspects of this so-called immaterial system, right? So I thought it really captured this dynamic really well, and perhaps we can tease that out more. So um, Marisa, I wonder if you can maybe share with us a little bit about your piece or, or the two pieces that you shared with us. Yeah, so I sent um, two pieces and one was just a like a one-page fact sheet that was put out in 2019 before uh, social closures, before the pandemic from the American Indian Policy Institute, Tracy Morris and, um, oh my, Brian Howard, had done um, a survey in from 2017 to 2018 of uh, uh, Native American social gatherings, essentially where lots of Native Americans were, uh, you know, convening to sort of try to ascertain, you know, what was their um, experience with internet connectivity and access. Because, you know, in the United States, uh, any data on that over Indian lands, over sovereign Indian lands. This is okay. So just uh, to the to the participants, I'll often say sovereign Indian lands, and I'm talking about American Indians, Native Americans, because we have Raul whose work is in India. <laughs> I don't want this to be confusion. I'll talk about Indian country. It's a legal term, a federal legal term in the US, but that is not to be confused with India. So I just want to, yes, there's a colonial history and we don't need to go into it. Right Maybe, I don't know. So anyways, I you know uh, just submitted that to kind of show that you know before COVID, it was already a crisis in, you know, for many Native families on and off reservations, the lack of internet access and connectivity and how that limits your creativity, how that limits your capacity to engage in many sectors of society. I mean, automatically um, the ability to become part of the creative class, so to speak, is just, it's just materially impossible. It's impossible. And so, so anyways, and then COVID hit and my research, I've been working with a research team for the last, I think it's been a, almost gonna be three years now that's Elizabeth Belding, who's a computer scientist also at UC Santa Barbara, 
you know, um, uh, Ellen Segura, Morgan Vigil, Ellen Segura's at Georgia Tech, um, uh, Morgan Vigil Hayes at Northern Arizona University, and Jennifer Case Navarez, who's a um, grassroots um, educator in Santa Fe, in the Santa Fe area. We're working together to kind of understand, you know, how can we deploy um, TV white space installations to sort of, you know, bring wireless connectivity to places where it's just, you know, physically impossible to bring in. 2.5 gigahertz or five giga, uh, you know, uh, 5G connections, if you will. So, um, so anyways, I submitted a, a section of that, you know, what our experience has been. And so far, just in a nutshell, you know, one of the, you know, where the work is sort of leading me is to understand that in some places, the decisions, if you have a will towards wireless, it's never wireless internet, that is, it's nevertheless tempered by a decision to you know, are we going to bring in new partners into this political vision that we have for internet? Or is it better to stabilize the relationships we have now? And that can sort of shape deployment, you know, um, and for native peoples, it's, you know, and for tribes, it's just, it's extremely risky sometimes to bring in people who maybe their visions of the internet are this, like, you know, you've probably heard this, the friction-free, seamless, you know, e-commerce, this vision that's really not wasn't born in Indian country and it's not meant for it, you know? And so that's what some of what, that's what's beginning to sort of surface right now. Yeah, I, I think I'll, that's all I'll say about that. Right, thank you. Yeah, the, the reporting on your work on TV white space stations is so fascinating, the kind of sleuthing and forensic work that it takes to think about infrastructural development that completely falls out when the story is about friction-free connectivity, right? Um, and actually that story in a lot of ways to me resonated with the piece that you shared, Shannon, um, about community networks. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that piece and, and what draws you to it. Sure, I think it picks up on some themes that Rahul and Marissa already mentioned. First of all, the fact that the building, the process of actually designing uh, kind of a wireless system allows for the, I think to use your terms, Tyler, kind of the emergence of a new configuration of materiality. In this case, it's a new form of community. It's also an opportunity for a community to reassess its values, which might be different from, as Marissa said, the seamless friction-free kind of uh, connectivity, which is all about convenience and efficiency, when maybe that's not, those are not the primary values of a particular community. And I chose this piece because, um, first of all, I've had the great pleasure of working with Greta Byram, the author, on some library boards in the city over the past few years. We also got the chance through meeting each other on these library boards, so Marisa, we have a library connection also, um, to teach a class together, an undergraduate studio last spring um, on uh, an anthropology of networks, where we were looking at an anthropology of community networks around the city. Also, I worked with the Architectural League of New York to edit this series called Digital Frictions, um, which is about the purposeful choice to, to actually embed frictions in something, to, to choose against the frictionless, seamless connectivity. Um, and this was a 10-part series that I edited. Specifically, this journal is for the Architectural League of New York, which means it's primarily going to reach architects and planners. And we wanted to essentially put the idea of designing technical infrastructure as part of their repertoire, something that you should be thinking about as you were designing buildings and cities. Um, and I just thought this was a really resonant, beautiful piece, 
piece. Greta is also a beautiful writer. I just wanted to read the last paragraph that I think is a really resonant final, final thought to leave readers with. So after describing working with disenfranchised, some kind of marginalized communities, some, she works in marginalized urban communities and hyper rural communities who are not regarded as, you know, top priority markets for commercial internet service providers. So in many cases, they have no choice but to design their own networks. In some cases, you have people who could choose to go with a corporate service provider, but choose not to because they're prioritizing different values. So she closes the piece with, this is one example of how a vision of the people's internet built and nurtured by community leaders and organizers has created a legacy of grassroots power to challenge the unchecked dissemination of new, ruthlessly efficient technologies of surveillance and social control. This vision asks us to choose excuse me, what future we want, one in which things break and are sometimes slow, in which we come together as neighbors and allies to fix and maintain and govern, or one in which speed and efficiency trump all other values. So you do, do you choose intentional inefficiency that also gives you a chance to design your governance structures, or do you hand over the rights to governance to a corporation um, for the sake of efficiency and convenience? So that's why I chose this piece. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I think they're all such rich, um, really, really, really rich pieces that sort of point to uh, what I wanted to sort of get at with my first question, which is about the way that it becomes clear, even just with these brief descriptions of these various projects and various contexts, that what we know to be wireless is not one thing, right? That wireless systems are involved in and productive of really highly divergent and contextually specific kinds of epistemologies, right? Frameworks of knowledge, frameworks of exploration and, and, and intellection and, and community value and so forth, right? Um, and this has been, this is a feature of a lot of your published work as scholars. So Shannon, you of course have written of the dream worlds that get articulated around 5G by those concerned to evangelize its mostly corporate potentials or commercial potentials. Rahul, you've shown how cell towers and other infrastructures become points at which publics in South Asia negotiate industrial and techno-scientific knowledge. And Marisa, you've dealt at length with how tribal governments in the U.S. Southwest bring indigenous knowledge frameworks and epistemologies to bear on questions of ICT development and governance. So I actually wanted to start here with this question of sort of epistemic fullness or richness or more than oneness, right? What is it about wireless that invites this kind of multifaceted approach or that seems to demand that we think it from all of these different angles, right? Um, all these divergent ways in which wireless is known, right? So um, Shannon, maybe perhaps you can begin here. Sure. So I, I know this is a term that Rahul was talking about and essential to his book. So I hope I'm not scooping you, Rahul, but I think it's it's kind of ethereality. It's materiality, material ambiguity. It's kind of hard to pin down seeming placeness, even though it is a placed infrastructure, obviously. There are geographically situated nodes, but it's seeming placelessness. It's seeming kind of immateriality, I think it makes it a really rich and capacious and, and modular symbol and system that, that you can, with, with into which you can infuse a whole bunch of different ideas and hopes and dreams and values and fears, et cetera. Great. Did anybody want to contribute to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that the, uh, uh, that the context is so, so important uh, because in, in some cases, um, like just um, part of my field work for the book was that like, there were some people who would say, 
you know, we would, uh, and like to give some context, like in India, like the cell tower, there are like these real clusters of cell, cell antennas together sometimes. So it, it, they do become very conspicuous, right? So in some cases though, even though there was that kind of a cluster, people would say, you know, they identified cell antennas as being like really modern technologies, great because, you know, they, they support these very sleek phones and the, the, the more you get the numbers from 2G to 4G, so on. And then now we don't quite yet have a 5G, but they call it, you know, the ultra fast 4G. So, so, so a lot of these gradations make, make, and the idea is that, you know, because this, because this supports something like a sleek mobile phone, they are, they are sleek too. But in other cases where they've, people are, are believe that, you know, there's something going on and that they, that the cell antenna signals are possibly harmful. They have a very different idea of what, of how to relate to, to cell antennas. There's of course the question of in that many parts of India where, um, maybe some sometimes because of geographical aspects but in many cases because of a lack of political will or because of a particular political will there are lots of internet shutdowns um, cell antennas uh, have been kept at you know just 2g or 3g and particularly during covid um, when students uh, who study somewhere else but have gone back to some of these remote areas and not just remote but you know some areas um, like earlier the state of jammu and kashmir but now the union territory of Jammu and Kashmir, where they've had a real issue being able to, um, um, you know, connect to their classes remotely, so on and so forth, because of some of these internet shutdowns, but also a kind of political way of maintaining only 2G and 3G, not allowing 4G in a lot of places. So depending upon the context, uh, of course, a lot of different kinds of, um, a term uh, that you've used before, epistemic unruliness is indeed there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find there's something very in in my my wirelessness course with my students. We got to talking about it's the the unruliness and like the promiscuousness of wirelessness, right? The way things seem to connect in ways that you can't quite predict or account for, and it seems to invite this kind of speculative thinking about well, maybe something's really going on, right? That there's these gaps in the way that the system appears to work that are not intuitively explainable in a lot of cases, right? Um, Marisa, did you want to add to this question of sort of like wireless epistemology on the basis of your work? Yeah, sure. You know, um, it's, um, you know, one of the first ways that I, I was sort of astonished by a chapter that I had read. Um, gosh, it must have been 2009 or so, maybe a bit later. And it was um, sort of trying to understand from a, um, it was imagining American Indian tribes as communitarian societies. And it was sort of trying to understand deployment of wireless infrastructure as uh, especially by the community as maybe like a can we analyze with this uh, with a marxist framework and see you know has it what has it benefited you know in terms of um you know seizing power away from the corporate you know um wireless capacity in that region that kind of thing and i was sort of struck by that because it was there was a there was a little bit of a problem with that i would say from um, an indigenous perspective, and that is as indigenous peoples, I'll, I'll speak for all of North America, but my work centers in the United States for U.S. tribes, we know that we're invisible. You know, we, we know that the reasons that we don't have infrastructure really of any kind to many of our reservation communities and even our urban reservation communities has to do with, we know that it's technological redlining. We know that we're being sort of shut off from services. It's not any sort of mystery 
It's not a conspiracy. It's the reality of the United States. And we know that according to all of our treaty rights and our recognition rights, that we need to have a seat at the table when it comes to decisions about all infrastructure, water, oil, natural gas, you know, um, electric power, you know, and you have tribes with these things written into their treaties in like the 1950s, (laughs) you know, it's, it goes pretty far back. And so um, for many tribes, you know, my experience so far has been that, you know, bringing wireless, whether, you know, whether you're talking about, um, you know, just basic lifeline cell service to rural people, or if you're talking about creating like a fiber, a hub, you know, that's going to serve not just the tribe, but rural areas like an enterprise. The goal is not only about, you know, uh, us getting a seat at the table and having the right to provide our infrastructure infrastructure to these groups, but it's about being visible, you know, using that, seeing it as a means to make our stories heard, to combat the incredible disinformation that has um, caused such suffering, continues to cause such suffering among Native peoples and Indigenous pe- Native peoples in the U.S., but Indigenous peoples broadly. So there's this kind of, um, it's a little bit of a, a, a trick to try to understand um, ethos and values around wirelessness in Indian country, because the way we speak at the federal government is not the way, the values that we hearken are not the values that we hearken when speaking within our own tribal communities. We have to code and encode everything in different ways to make it legible to different groups you know, and so it's, um, it's a, I guess you would, you could call it code switching. I, I really think it's much more profound than that. It's not simply about language. It's literally different futures that we're building. And these sometimes combat and compete with each other, um, you know, which is something that as Indigenous academics and activists and advocates, we kind of parlay about quite a bit. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. It, And what strikes me about a lot of these different contexts is kind of the question that comes up really around um, wireless infrastructures in general as knowledge formations, which is that they tend to be lodged in very elite forms of knowledge production um, and very kind of inaccessible forms of techno-scientific knowledge production. Um, And I think that is one of the things that invites uh, a kind of skeptical or even conspiratorial thinking um, about wireless infrastructures and the kind of conspiratorial thinking that we see increasingly emerging in the current moment. So I wanted to sort of, if I could, steer us toward this question of conspiracy. Um, Because as critics and analysts and historians of these systems, um, we have a clear interest in thinking about, in critiquing and thinking about the limits of elite knowledge structures and the, the power structures in which they're situated. Um, But I wonder how we square that with uh, or grapple with it in light of these exceptionally robust forms of conspiratorial thought that have taken shape around wireless in recent years and even in the last 12 months or so. Um, So concerns over the health effects of electromagnetic radiation, there's a long history to this in in media history and, and various other disciplines, but there's... I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that there's something really unique and intense about the kind of conspiracy system that we confront today that links things like 5G and Wi-Fi up with COVID and anti-vaccination types of conspiracy and conspiracies around major funding bodies like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that links up to an online ecosystem around QAnon and all of these different sort of conspiratorial systems of thought. Um, So I wonder... um, as we work to develop our own critiques of the sort of elite structures within which wireless technologies tend to be ensconced, how do we make sense of these more 
let's say, heterodox forms of critique of elite knowledge production, um, which are in their way um, concerned with the power that accrues to global finance and state governance and corporate evangelism, right? Really concretely serious issues in this realm. So um, anyone can take this one to, to start off with about conspiracy. Maybe I'll start because I think I used the word conspiracy in my last scholarly blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, That's what we should start calling them as yeah, scholarly you know, blah blahs. Yeah. Stop jabbering. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, um, you know, I, it's funny because I, um, I went to visit UT Austin. This was a while back, maybe eight years ago. And I was talking with um, Dr. Domingo Perez. And she was laughing and she was telling me about a really um, funny story that she'd heard on the radio. It was kind of a, a lighthearted story about conspiracy theories. And, you know, the first one is like, you know, lizard people. And the second one is UFO, you know, invasion. And then, but the fifth one, she's like, you wouldn't believe it. It was that um, Native Americans are buying back their land, you know, um, to, you know, take over the United States again or something like that. And I just burst out laughing. I, I was one of those laughter that it's like it comes from the it seems to come from like the molten earth that's beneath you know what I mean? <laughs> it just like you know comes out it just was it was just so funny to me because I was like that's not a conspiracy theory that's just a business plan <laughs> <laughs> our land was stolen from us you know and with it you know I mean it wasn't just stolen it was just this this massive dispossession where it was like not only is it stolen but you're will be severely punished for generations for speaking your language and you're not allowed to come to our schools and you must not practice your religion and you must not it was just like it was a complete dis dispossession the fragments of which are ongoing and so the idea of native peoples you know um buying back land and building casinos and so forth so that they can you know create futures for their people is like it still really strikes fear for a lot of folks and they they so an exam and it affects wirelessness. So an example is that um, I spoke with uh, another um, gentleman years ago. We had a tribal telecom and um, technology summit here at Wild Horse Pass in um, Chandler, Arizona. This was this was probably in like 2010 or so, 2011 maybe. And um, sitting outside by the pool, which is already a mirage. You know, there's no water here. <laughs> there. So so sitting out by this glittering pool, right? And we're at a, a tribal casino hotel resort conference center. And he's telling me that at Mojave, you know, which is um, kind of like, um, it's this, this the, the, tr the people, the people of that land, their homelands is like California, Colorado, Arizona, that whole region. But that particular reservation that he was working at, that they wanted to build their own, you know, sort of wireless, their own tribally owned wireless internet service provider, but that Frontier, they had signed a deal years ago in the 80s with Frontier Communications that before they had their casino, that, that was essentially a non-compete clause, that they're not allowed to bring to build out their own infrastructure. They're not allowed to compete in perpetuity. And so when they got their casino, it was like then they could afford this very expensive infrastructure and training. But that evocation, that fear that Indians are going to get money and buy back the land from the settlers all around, the Americans with their dreams, you know, came up again as this political thing. We see this over and over again in California as the, as the state, you know, or different counties sort of try to um, start. It's, it happens like every election season. You have people who are running on anti-Indian platforms of don't let them have their casinos because they're going to use that money to build things, you know? <laughs> so that conspiracy theory um, 
is it's one that affects us in Indian country. And it's, so it's sort of interesting because it's like, you know, um, if I think about like the, um, the, the fear that, you know, 5G is causing COVID or, or all those kind of things, it, it counts back to this idea of who is the virus. You know, these wireless networks are transmitted, you know, in this sort of like rhizomatic way, if you will. And so who is the virus? And in the past, it was us. It was Native Americans who were the virus. And so that is sort of, we become sort of like this dangerous figure. And if you let us be on the internet, you know, then, oh my goodness, we could lose the territories or something. Well, so Marissa's ref, uh, reference to the virus made me think, uh, in addition to your acknowledging, Tyler, that there's a much longer history of uh, fears about bodily harm, conspiracy around any type of kind of materially ambiguous medium uh, related to the whole kind of 150 year plus dis- discussion of the ether, for instance. But um, uh, this, I, there's a longer discussion of the whole idea of the invasive species as well, and kind of the idea of 5G, particular subjects. So there's the entanglement of these different invasive species. And the angle that I, I would have to say, I have cited some of our whole's work in my own work where I talk about the, the, the origin of these conspiracies. So I'm going to try to stay away from that territory in case that's what he would like to discuss. But one thing I do think is relevant here is issues of proximity. So if we have multiple kind of factors or vectors of, of destabilization happening simultaneously. I mean, this is just kind of how basic conspiracy theories work in many cases. You have a convenient correlation between forces. So they temporally, you kind of, their their temporal proximity leads to a causal connection between them. There's also an issue of spatial proximity because there's a unique geography to 5G also, because it does require a different type of physical infrastructure with with small cells that are um, smaller individual units, but, but a, a placed into the landscape at greater frequency and often closer to people's homes, it kind of invades, it's an invasive species of the neighborhood in a new way that many other previous infrastructures had not been. And so that itself presents a threat. And and because being concerned about one's property values is often an uncouth thing to say, often fears about capitalist concerns of property values are then displaced in some cases onto things like public health. So there might be a kind of a a transferal of blame here because you want to shield the fact that you're actually worried about how ugly infrastructure is going to impact your home, the the price of your home. Right. Instead of having a lovely evergreen tree out in your front yard, you have a terrible fake, you know, like camouflage data mast or something like that, which is still among my favorite things just because they're so tacky and ugly. And I like tacky and ugly things sometimes. But anyways, Rahul, did you want to pick up on this at all? Yeah, I mean... um... You know, I mean, some of the sort of standard aspects would be to mention that, uh, you know, conspiracies require a certain kind of uh, information ecosystem. We have it in, you know, the ways we have these eco chambers, which seem like different kind of worlds uh, by themselves. And one can keep going deep into that. Um, and of course, there is uh, something which is that there is a there, historically there's been a kind of culture cultures of distrust, cultures of uncertainty around, you know, um, cell antenna signals moving from 2G, 3G to 5G. There's been a culture of distrust uh, around, you know, historical wrongs around sort of vaccine movements, things like that. Uh, but what, what uh, and sort of the anti-vaccine discourse picking on some of them uh, in the way they discuss. Um, but what, of course, and what happens during the, the COVID moment is this kind of the the kind of convergence of these two, which to me um, kind of 
leads to a certain kind of, you know, somewhat strange, somewhat bizarre at times. People have called it crazy and gone on to say that it's a conspiracy theory. But what I find uh, kind of uh, a way to think about it is to, is to think about why they came together. And of course, there's this whole thing about the microchip and the vaccine and Bill Gates is this figure who embodies both vaccine and big tech. And, and, and that's how the projection of, of that happened. But for me, what is interesting is also that the anti-5G uh, movement has a whole, very different history. And uh, often it gets dismissed as NIMBYism. And as Shannon has written, it's, it's not just NIMBYism. There's so much going on. I mean, I sort of kind of remember a line is that says here 5G we see here is not just an issue of connectivity and, and convenience. It's also about landscape, real estate, aesthetics, public resources, energy, equity, and governance. So, um, so, so the anti-5G movement has a different genealogy in a way. The anti-vaccine movement has a different genealogy. And there you do have, um, I mean, some could say they're problematic. Some could say that, you know, there are real questions of uh, cultures of distrust, cultures of uncertainty uh, there. Uh, their confluence has had a lot of this flavor of the conspiracy theory, and the confluence is coming from a uh, from a from a kind of conjunction because of the COVID crisis in a way, and what's been playing out. But to kind of separate them and looking at their own histories, I think might also give us a sense of where we are. Right. Is that something really quickly? I think another issue is that in many cases we have certain marginalized populations who have historically been placed in proximity to legitimately dangerous infrastructures like chemical waste dumps and um, kind of heavy heavy industry, for instance. So there is a, a legitimate concern about proximity to new infrastructures because there's been a history of harm in many communities. Right, exactly. And just before we move on to the next question, I just there was something also in your in your comment, Shannon, about the way that these anxieties maybe sort of like displaced or sort of projected anxieties about much more quotidian or routine kinds of anxieties like property value and so forth. Um, this to me also seems like a sort of um, spun up narrative about a concern that's basically about supply chains and supply chain management because of the panic about the 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 global market for like Chinese manufactured. 5G equipment, right? And the way that the the global spread of just like literal bibs and bobs of 5G equipment that are manufactured in China gets kind of reimagined and grafted onto a racist panic about the the so-called Chinese virus and these other racist tropes that have emerged around um, around uh, the coronavirus and the way these things kind of get grafted onto one another. And really what these things are is these are panics about economic hegemony um, as opposed to fear of sort of not necessarily or at their core, these sort of like high level conspiratorial things. These are quotidian fears about supply chains and, and economic power and development and so forth, right? Right. So um, this actually might be an opportunity to open this up beyond the sort of frame of conspiracy, which is kind of narrow and has this certain kind of affect. And just talk more generally about uncertainty um, and the role of uncertainty in wireless technocultures. Um, it, this just happens to be one of the issues that Rahul, you mark in your book, your new book, Radiant Infrastructures, Media, Environment, and Cultures of Uncertainty. But it was also struck, Marisa, by the way that it comes up in your kind of forensic sleuthing work that you're conducting as part of your work in the Southwest, right? The, the way that you're discerning these gaps between network coverage maps and the on-the-ground reality of how wireless systems are actually functioning in the region, right? And the uncertainty of what is actually covered and what is not and so forth, right? 
Um, and I wanted to just explore this a little bit more just because of the way that uncertainty is so central to the history of wireless communication. Um, so just to give one example, while the story of Marconi successfully sending a wireless signal across the Atlantic in 1901 is very familiar, right? One of these heroic stories of invention. What's less familiar is what Sung Kong calls Marconi's error. Right. So when Marconi sends this famous transmission, what he assumes actually has happened is that the signal has traveled across the surface of the Earth rather than upward toward the ionosphere, which reflects it back down to the receiver in Newfoundland. Right. And physicists like Oliver Lodge relentlessly attacked Marconi for his kind of basic inability to explain what it is that he had done or to provide a, a rigorously scientific account of how his system was actually functioning. Um, but this inability to explain, not only did it not really hamper him economically or at a kind of corporate level, in some ways it was a kind of boon to his corporate ambitions, because here was this man who, despite the great mystery of the ether, had somehow harnessed it, right? It's a great sales pitch if you want to sell national governments and regulators on the necessity of corporate monopoly, for instance, right? Um, so I wonder, just based on your own research practices, uh, about how do you understand uncertainty or error or incompleteness of knowledge um, around these systems? What does it enable? What does it make possible? And what does it foreclose for just really broadly construed? Um, maybe, Marisa, we can go back to you for this one. Yeah, so, you know, we've had a problem in Indian country for quite a while in that the the information embedded in the national broadband plan the maps and so forth even if you know if you contact fcc as you know if you're involved in you know um coordinating or deploying these infrastructures you have to to get certain information downloaded you know so that you can set up your base stations and whatever that there's just incredible discrepancies in the data that is supported supposedly in the national map and what is on the ground and it's just so incredible um, I mean, I, I don't even think that's the right word. I mean, it's downright falsified in many situations that you can, you know, if you're a, a, a rural network provider, you can't make a, you know, you can't make a resilient business plan on the basis of that, you know, and, and the pattern that I've been seeing in New Mexico and in other places is that you'll have these providers come in, they may be the larger medium-sized providers that get federal subsidy to serve an underserved rural population, and they fail after about seven years. You know, they don't last longer than that. And so we've got this revolving door. And from the perspective of somebody who's on the ground living there, say in Taos or, or you know, a smallish community, is that this is the big guys who came in and can't do it. There's taken advantage of us. And they're not the big guys, actually. If you look at the broader monopoly of telecom in the United States, they're kind of relatively small fish, you know, in a really big, um, in an ocean, you know, of these sharks. And so, um, but that, the, the problem sort of is that then we, when, when then we have folks like me, you know, digital divide advocates who sort of come up with these solutions. And we sort of work at this um, unclear intersection between government and um, communities and the university. And that is extremely tenuous. Anybody who has worked in that space knows how tenuous it is. Our timelines don't match up. Our priorities don't match up. The way we talk, what we value, it does not align to the point where if you're in a university, you know, it feels like, why am I doing this? You know, I'm not this is this is this project is not going to carry through. I'm not able to work with my community in the way I really want to. And that uncertainty is productive for the university. It's not productive for the community, you know, and the government is like they're they've got they're on their own trip. You know, <laughs> they, 
and that for a tribal community, that is extremely risky territory because what ends up happening is where do we get to innovate? We don't have that sort of flexible, fluid space where the data is accurate, but we're allowed to make mistakes. We're allowed to fail. We're allowed to pilot and set up test beds and train people. As you know, we all train students like, you know, um, it may be your generous instructor and you give your grad students A's, but in, in your mind, you're thinking that was a C. <laughs> like, that was a good shot because grad students, we all need to fail. We need to make mistakes. That's what it is about. You know, that's how you learn. But if you're a community that's really trying to come up with a solution, the space to allow for that uncertainty and failure is almost none. I mean, you could just lose your business. You could lose your livelihood you could lose trust. The community could lose trust in you. And you might think, oh my gosh, what is my other work going to be? You could uh, have to default on a federal loan or grant that was quite expensive. And then all of a sudden you're, it's going to make it more difficult for you to get another one in the future. And so for me, uncertainty is sort of like, um, as a scientist, I view uncertainty as the space in which we can learn. You know, it's the space of epistemic friction. But as somebody who's sort of, um, you know, sort of interested in defending and protecting Indian country, I also see it as a space for gambling. That's where the sociotechnical speculation occurs. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of, there's something valuable about the image of New Mexico or Arizona or Colorado as this open space where, you know, oh, we can put 5G towers because look at all this landscape, you know, and these are the cities and we'll invest in the cities and people will come in and buy in the cities and there isn't much care for the rural communities. That kind of socio-technical speculation is really valuable in those places. There's also, of course, and you gestured to it a little bit in the in the longer piece that you shared with us, but there's also peculiarly in, in the context that you're working in this strange twist of this longer history of a kind of liberal new age Southwest tourism that imagines the whole space as energetically charged, right? As this kind of, um, as itself kind of like suffused with a kind of energy that invites all these kinds of spiritual speculation and so forth, right? Um, but that's a kind of um, speculative uh, activity that is really a luxury of the tourist of the area, right? Whereas actually the material stakes of energetic connectivity are, are really quite pitted um, for the communities that you're working in. Right. Did anybody else have any thoughts on this question of uncertainty before we move on? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that term is kind of important. Uh, um, I mean, <laughs> I, I think something that Marissa was also mentioning that the data collection around, you know, cell antenna signal levels, and that was a huge issue in India. I mean, different agencies would come and collect this different, and their data would look very different. And there would sometimes there was even a, a you know, a story about how a Bollywood actress asked somebody to first take the the readings and. Uh, the signal levels were very high the first time recorded. The second time they got somebody else to record it and the signal levels were really low. And the idea was that the the cell antenna, um, the direction of the cell antenna was changed or a set of them were changed. So how do you work? And like, um, like again, about the data is like how a particular case study is being reported. Um, so, you know, both sides would say that, uh, so with, uh, with cell antenna signals and particularly RF, EMFs, the kind of biological effects, that's a very contested area. And there's a huge divide within experts. So there are experts, counter experts. And 
almost sometimes a 50-50 set of, you know, of some people who would say that there is a connection between biological effects and, and, and it's beyond thermal effects. There are these other effects. Others would say like, no, there are nothing beyond thermal effects. And, um, but the way it's reported sometimes is almost like um, that overall, uh, there were no connections found. Uh, overall, there are no significant connections found, but that sort of kind of uh, glosses over the fact that, you know, maybe 40% of the papers said that they had find, found connections. So, so there is an allegation that, the, that the, the, the telecom regulators over time have sort of used on that overall metaphor to create uncertainty that, you know, there, continuously there can be a doubt. And as long as there's a doubt, it's still fine. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's been discussion about whether aluminum foils can really reflect cell antenna signals and, you know, regulators and cell, cell phone companies have said that this kind of a charge really just is more misinformation, it creates uncertainty. So, in a way, both, both suggest that there are these uncertainties. But my sense has been that, um, you know, what Shannon was saying before was that this idea of living in close proximity, which is a kind of unwanted proximity with, say, cell antenna. And it could, you know, tinge into sort of the nimbism stuff. But at the same time, you know, having lost uh, some of your relatives, um, I, I spoke to this person who had lost his relatives, and um, he really did not want um, the cell towers in his near his house. And he was an influential dweller in that city of Jaipur, but he still could not get the regulators to evict the towers or to take them off. And the regulators can, told him again and again, reassured him that we are really keeping it below threshold level. But he didn't believe them. He didn't believe the radiation detectors he was using, but he believed finally when the peacocks came to his gun. And I keep repeating the story, but uh, again and again at every place, but it really, he, he really thought the peacocks were more sensitive. And if they were not, uh, you know, they were the detectors for him and they were the ones he could rely on. So uncertainty is also, I mean, it creates, you know, misinformation, it can create conspiracies, it can create doubts used by both camps, you know, organizational, corporate, state, everyday encounters of ordinary people. But at the same time, I found that uncertainty also leads to these, like people find their own ways to cope with that daily uncertainty of, you know, living in these kinds of like unwanted intimacies with signals uh, or, or proximities with cell antennas. So in that sense, I mean, it's, it's a generative term, at least for academics studying it, but it also makes you think that it also leads to maybe thinking with how people actually cope with an uncertain situation. I'd say, I just think that's one of the most resonant or beautiful themes about Rahul, um, Rahul's book is that the uncertainty proves generative, both for people to explore embodied vernacular forms of knowing, uh, empower citizens, I, kind of, I don't know if you would call them citizen science, so we'll put that in scare quotes here, I don't know if they would identify as that, but, but, but you know, on the ground um, um, epistemologies, but I'd rather kind of leave with that message of hopefulness, but I do think that there are some other ways that this uncertainty is turned into speculation to continue with one of Marissa's themes, and that's especially when when you're working with telecommunications infrastructures or installations in a city where you're dealing with three dimensions and there are a variety of potential intervening variables, rain, trees, building materials, how deep your building is, how many people are in a building at any given day. All of these things are often unpredictable variables that you have to kind of use as a test bed. So there's uns there, you can't necessarily model how something is going to work until you do a tr it's trial and error. So that unpredictability, that kind of um, uncertainty there provides an opportunity for proprietary knowledge to be kept with the corporations again. So going back to that whole issue of elite knowledge. 
And furthermore, we see it with uh, another area of speculation is where 5G infrastructures are being embedded with other forms of smart city surveillance technologies, things like the link kiosks that are being put throughout the New York and London. So there again, because we want to ensure uh, a blanket connectivity, we're then trust, we're, we're, um, both physically and kind of ideologically linking this idea of connectivity with other forms that are kind of just slipping in forms of smart city technology, which again have positive and negative connotations. So just the over this continual trope of kind of the overlapping of, of infrastructures. That ended up being not totally coherent, but I hope there was something <laughs> intelligible there. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Um, I actually, I, I want to steer us in a slightly different direction just as we head into our last couple of questions here, but I wanted to ask a, a question that again, another another issue or sort of watchword that's central in the history of the development of wireless ICTs, which is marginality or the margin. Um, Marisa, this of course is sort of central to the work that you gave us. The, in particular, you developed this notion of multiple marginalities, uh, the multiple, multiple marginalities that structure wireless connectivity in the context you're working in. Um, uh, and I just wanted to sort of frame that a little bit by saying that wireless, right, has long been understood as unique in its capacity to sort of morph and distend and stretch what we think of as the center and what we think of as the margin. So we could think of Marshall McLuhan, right, writing of this sort of world of pervasive electronic communication that emerges after World War II, um, and where he suggests that broadcast media of all sorts create a totally involving acoustic space whose center is no, or what is it again? Center is everywhere and whose margin is nowhere. I often flip the two, although that's kind of like a McLuhan thing to do, to not really know what it means, but to do it anyways. Um, and more recently, but in this kind of inverted fashion, um, we have people like Adrian McKenzie, who I mentioned earlier, who writes about moving through wireless space as a kind of edgy experience in the sense that you're constantly sort of moving from one bubble at a coffee shop to the bubble at the store to another and so on and so forth, right? you're constantly crossing the edge of various wireless environments. And in that sense, the peripheral, the peripherality becomes central to the experience of being in communication, right, wirelessly. Um, but your work, Marisa, just to take one example, makes it clear that in tribal contexts, reliance on wireless media and marginality is not at all a universal or kind of metaphysical condition, but very pitted and anchored in a specific set of histories and contexts and, and relationships and so forth. So I wonder just as we begin to wrap up, if you could each or maybe, maybe Marisa, if you just want to take this one, um, speak a little bit more about what marginality looks like in contemporary wireless cultures. Um, what forms does it assume in the future? And what kind of strategies might mitigate that kind of marginality if perhaps it even needs to be mitigated? Perhaps there's things about being on the margins that are productive or, or valuable, so forth. That makes me think of two sort of um, stories that I'm trying to sort of fit into the same, I don't know how to uh, fit it into the same world um, and make, mean, make them meaningful. And one is a story that John Badal, he's the um, CEO of Sacred Winds, which is a, um, it is a <clears throat> internet service provider that serves, um, I believe it's the Eastern, I'm sorry, not the Eastern, the Western edge of Navajo Nation, um, and also Hopi in um, sort of Northern New Mexico, um, Arizona area. And Sacred, years ago, John Badal is just, he's a wonderful, fascinating person to speak with, one of my favorite people to speak with on these various topics, but he had told me years ago, he used to work for AT&T and he had told me that, you know, he's getting ready to retire from that career and was thinking, you know, what am I going to do, you know, in my next stage of my life, I'm not really ready to stop working, you know, and um, 
he was describing how he saw uh, Navajo children getting off a bus one time and learning, and they were very young, you know, and learning that they, at that time in history, that there was this boarding school and children as young as five would get on this bus and go, and they wouldn't come home, you know, for four or five days because they're going to the school and there was no way that they could call home at least, you know, during the week, they didn't have basic telecommunications in that area. And, um, you know, if you have a five-year-old, that's just unimaginable to, to not speak to your child every, almost every, you know, hour really <laughs> at that age, you know, and be with them all night. And, and so he, that's when he started thinking, I'm going to build a telecom out here for this community, for this region. And he took the plan to a number of local, you know, well-regarded um, businessmen in the area and said, I want you to understand this is a social enterprise. You know, the return on investment, the profit margin is going to be low. And um, one businessman in particular um, scoffed at the idea and did not think that it was, it was not worth his time nor money. He was offended by it because his business was dependent on keeping those families impoverished so that he could get the jewelry that they made at very low rates and resell it at 800 to 1000% markup in places like Washington, D.C. or New York City or in Santa Fe, you know, to tourists who are coming through the region. And so um, that margin translates into different things for different people. It's absolutely right. It's productive for one businessman and for either for the other. It's something that as a, as a moral citizen of New Mexico, you know, he can't abide by. He can't watch or be a part of, you know. Um, so I, I think about that. And then I also think about um, sort of a, a rumor that I heard circulating in Santa Fe, uh, not this past December, but December before December. Um, what would that be? 2019. Um, when Meow Wolf, I don't know if any of you know what Meow Wolf is. It's like, I think there's one in LA, I'm not sure. But it's this really um, immersive, fascinating, fun sort of um, art experience. It's they bring in a bunch of artists to Santa Fe. And they create this like fun museum amusement park thing, which is very sort of pop art edgy. And it brings in a lot of tourists to Santa Fe. And uh, Meow Wolf in Santa Fe was rumored to be getting their own high speed connections so that they could send high um, digital, you know, high quality digital renderings all the way to L.A. and back to Hollywood and back. So it's a brainchild of uh, George R. Martin, Martin, supposedly. So I'm hearing this rumor while I'm also watching sort of the displacement of native artists in the area and longtime artisans, you know, from there, how they don't have basic connectivity for their children, you know, to be able to, to participate in school, they would have internet outages and, and yet Meow Wolf is supposedly getting this connection, right? Um, and you can observe the landscape, you know, as, um, and what, as, it, as it is said, the urban markup language and read these things, you know, where are the towers and where are they not in that area? And that kind of marginalization, you know, when it comes to that, I mean, I, I remember that the person sort of telling me about this and others, you know, who were there, I spoke about it with different people afterwards. Have you heard this? What, what do you think about it? Their excitement. So simultaneously being excited about Meow Wolf because it's so fun and cool and it's, it's a fun place to play and open your mind and it's edgy and it's artistic. At, at the same time, this, oh, yeah, but then there's these poor people. Oh, that is so sad, too. So there's this, like, the mind flickers on and off. Who do you see and who do you not see, right? Who, who in this choice about how I'm feeling, is it, okay, I'm performing for Dr. Duarte now. And she's all Indigenous and stuff. So, like, should I be really sad? <laughs> like, what am I going to perform, you know, when I'm expressing 
my sentiments about who gets connected and who doesn't in, in this scenario, you know? And so I'm, I'm still trying to reconcile these two concepts, but they both have to do with marginalization, how much we're willing to marginalize others in, when it comes to deployment or enjoyment of internet. I'll just say something about it. I think that the polysemicness, the polysemy of marginality, of marginality is really interesting here because it can, and it shows their entanglement of the different meanings too. There's socioeconomic marginalization, which can be transformed into financial margins. And then we also have, just even because of the topology of the cell itself, I saw that Rory Solomon asked a question about what is it about the, the, the uh, shape, essentially, the geography, the topology of wirelessness that is maybe unlike other infrastructures that allows different forms of sociality to form or not form. So just even the idea of, you know, our everyday experience of moving around the house to find out when we're on the margin of connectivity. So we move our bodies to to find those margins as well. So just seeing all the different ways that margins play a role in the topology of wirelessness is, and the fact that they're kind of layered upon and, and entangled with one another is something that just occurred to me that's kind of interesting. So <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm also struck, I mean, listening to both Marissa and Shannon, I'm also struck also by how the state selectively deploys the aspect of, or the discourse of marginality and periphery related to wireless footprints at times when, you know, it it wants to kind of normalize cell antennas so that, you know, they're everywhere in that sense. Um, in India, the infrastructure analogy is that just like, you know, you have a water tank on your rooftop, you should also have a cell antenna. And there is that kind of a normalization of the infrastructure right here. At the same time, as I said, like given a certain kind of politically deliberate political aspect to how internet shutdowns are done in particular regions so that people from that region cannot report about what's going on there. Um, so um, clearly it's the state uh, takes a rather selective approach to what it wants to talk about when it talks about digital divide or, or you know, this kind of wireless marginality. The, the charisma of the infrastructure seeming to be enough to correct for the margin, right, and so forth. Um, all right, so I'm I want to just in our last few minutes here, just being cognizant of the time, to turn to some of our audience questions. Shannon, you already pointed to Rory's, which we'll hopefully dig into a little bit more. But um, I wanted to start with a question from Melody Jew, which is um, in wonderfully Melody fashion, really suggestive and literary and wonderful. So hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation, Melody writes, so the rest of the quote is water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. How might the second clause relate, relate to wires, not just that wires are everywhere or wires, wires everywhere, but somehow unusable or perhaps um, less intriguing to use than these more kind of hype driven wireless systems. So if anybody wants to think a little bit about Melody's prompt. Just a really obvious part. Go, there you go. No, please go ahead. I feel like I've talked a lot. Well, I'll just say like one sentence. It makes me think of dark fiber, you know, the, all the potential infrastructure that's there that's not used for a variety of political economic purposes or reasons. Yeah, I wanted to talk about fiber that is um, copper, copper, copper line fiber, degrading fiber that is there, but it is not being invested in or used in or repaired or built up. We, I mean, the 5G investments right now are very much about completely new you know, and um, fiber optics and it's, but you've got communities that can't afford that. It's just not physically possible for them. And so I'm not really seeing, I looked over the five, Biden's 5G plan, you know, I've been sort of kind of keeping my eye out for all of this 
what's coming around the bend, not really seeing significant investments, you know, in and just getting connectivity out there to our to rural Americans, to people in rural places, you know, it, using existing infrastructure. And um, so, um, yeah, it's it's it's, um, you know, I, I wish that we had a more robust. I wish there were plans that had uh, investments for more robust understandings of wireless that wasn't and that, you know, would really leverage some of the really exciting innovations that are happening through universities. But um, yeah, it's um, it's just very corporate driven. Um, and I just wanted to add uh, to both this uh, to just just like I find it very interesting that I don't know what it is, particularly perhaps this relationship between wireless, which is like, you know, acting at a distance and everything, having that sensor and the smart city discourse that a lot of the push has been in its kind of representations, this kind of ethereal air as medium things happening. Uh, but no, as much as every bit, I mean, the wireless scientists and the companies very well know that they have been, have, they have this unlit fiber and they need that kind of this two strand fiber that for this 5G to work. So the investments on optical fiber go on happening, but what is often discussed is the wirelessness. But of course the wirelessness stands on a foundation of optical fiber cables for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm going to go to a question from Bashkar Sarkar, who says, I'm fascinated by the ways in which ethereality is always depicted or discussed in terms of concentration and coverage, density and footprint. For instance, we talk about frequencies and amplitudes, worry about bandwidth and wheat signals, and drawing concentric circles emanating from sources like television broadcast and cell towers, right? This language of radiance to, to point to some of Rahul's work. Um, how, if at all, is this conundrum related to the masking and elision of social contradictions and frictions? That is, to what extent is the ethereality a function of the abstractions that are inherent, inherent to blueprints, policy documents, and scholarly analysis? What design principles might circumvent these problems? Maybe Shannon as a design thinker. <laughs> I have to say, this is one of those questions that I think I'd have to read it to, to get <laughs> packed into it. So I don't know if one of you, uh, Marissa or Rahul, you'd like to start, then maybe I can process. I'm not sure that I was able to, to fully follow the, the richness of that question, I'm afraid. Is it typed out somewhere and I'm just not seeing it? I think it's in the q and I think the question is really about... Um, okay the kind of visual language of coverage and radiance and potentially the role that that plays in obscuring like ideologically the actual social contradictions that you've all been teasing out really wonderfully over the course of it. So I guess the question is what alternative aesthetic or representational or design languages might be more appropriate to a, a social understanding of wireless connectivity? I'm um, I hoping think... I got that right, Bashkar, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking right now about um, the need for um, people who, it's sort of the need to really understand the tacit knowledge of local network providers and people who are technicians. So I, I remember in that paper, I wrote about how important it is for policymakers to understand that in Española, New Mexico, there's gunshots on New Year's, <laughs> New Year's Eve. This is what happens, you know, they shoot in the air, they're celebrating the new year. And, you know, when that hits, and this did happen, you know, that hits and it causes, it causes, you know, a, a wireless outage, an internet outage. Who is the one who's going to go out there for hours and check miles and miles and miles of rural cable in that freezing temperature using a bucket truck? The internet is going to be down for how long that takes, which in a rural place is a really long time. And it's not like there's these 
you know, uh, nicely paved snow plowed roads just ready for you out there. I mean, you're going to have, it's going to be cold. You're going to be, and so thinking that makes me think about, you know, what is the life of the network technician in these rural places? You know, is your, what is your sort of employer's insurance coverage look like? You know, what, how physically fit do you need to be to do this job? You know, what kind of vehicles do you need? I mean, it's all these other quality of life things that are not written into these designs. I mean, we see, you see this all the time. You know, I'm hearing this now because I'm supporting a team that's working on TV white space. And we'll hear people who are uh, proponents of other kinds of solutions, 2.5 gigahertz or whatever, who will say things like, oh, TV white space, that doesn't really work. And yet when you're on the ground and you're dealing with foliage and adobe, adobe walls and things like this, like I don't need this scientific rendering to tell me it doesn't work. I know for a fact it's not going to make it through this adobe wall. And look at what it's doing to my life. You know, like my kids can't do their homework unless they go to their aunt's house, which is stucco. But we're native and we want to stay in our adobe home, you know, and we don't want to cut down trees to like to build this thing. It's it's not about property value or aesthetic. It's about our deep connection to these cottonwood trees, you know, and what they mean for our place. And so that kind of being able to understand the landscape as, as it is lived through, as it is spiritually belonged to, you know, historically belonged to, and that's usually not what gets translated into these sort of high level documents, whether they're the bird's eye view aerial maps, you know, the sort of the uh, uh, network topographies, you know, which are, I always, I look at these things and I'm just, it's like I'm turning my mind inside out and upside down to interpret them and trying to connect with what's the real lived reality in Tehachapi, New Mexico, or in, you know, these various places. Shannon, did you have any thoughts? <laughs> well, I think um, Marissa ended up kind of where I was thinking as well, and that's just the the desire, the compulsion to find visualizations for all of these systems, which has kind of been a theme through my research all along, like how we try to make sense of, how we try to trans create a public pedagogy to understand obfuscatory systems or really complex systems. So if we, if you were to do a Google image search on kind of wireless networks, you'd probably get one of these abstractions that shows the cells, for instance. But that is, that does not get the kind of the ethnographic on the groundness, the, the materiality of the, the foliage, the kind of building materials, the other things that kind of intervene all those intervening variables I mentioned earlier. It's really hard to visualize those types of things in a, in a consumable infographic. But, um, but you know, the, the infographics do have their pedagogical and epistemological purpose, but they tend to promote these um, kind of myth, myths, these simplistic myths about how a system works. Right. Um, and I think for our last audience question, Rory, I, I give you my apologies, but since we already briefly touched on your question, I want to give one more guest a, a chance to get a, a shot at getting their question. And this, so this comes from Allison Schifani, um, who asks, I was hoping the panelists could speak about the aesthetics of error, artifact, frozen screens, et cetera, that are attached to connectivity issues, which of course we're now all too familiar with constantly <laughs> when our Wi-Fi goes down and we're in the middle of a webinar, for instance, or something. Um, I, is there a possibility of a radical aesthetics of error or an aesthetic of a practice dealing with error, and I'd like to think beyond so-called glitch art and more about leveraging an aesthetics of error toward a radical politics. So any closing thoughts on that? There's a, um, there's a, a weaving. Um, I can't remember who the artist was. A Navajo weaving. Nav if you don't, aren't familiar with Navajo weaving, you know, that, that practice, it's got this very deep, rich history from the way that 
materials are gathered to the meaning of the colors as related to the cosmology, you know, the particular styles, certain families specialize in certain styles. One has to be of right mind and spirit and training to be able to engage in that practice. And um, about a year ago, there was an exhibit at Herd Museum here in Phoenix, you know, with all these sort of contemporary Navajo weavings. And it was this enormous rug, you know, and it, it fills the whole wall. And it's of the, um, the television white screen from tube TV days, you know, um, and, and I just, it's just mesmerizing because you realize that this, the weaver had to think about every place that was either black or white it, as through the warp and the weft of the weaving. And so what were they meditating on when they were deciding what is the warp and what is the weft, you know, and what colors to bring forth in every single thing that for us means the TV is not working, you know, and even that, the idea of that, the YouTube, the, I'm sorry, the, the YouTube, the tube TV, <laughs> um, that, the, that, you know, um, uh, black and white sort of thing that tells you that your antenna needs to be adjusted. That's not translatable for people of a different generation who didn't grow up with that who don't remember that, that that's a signal of you got to move the rabbit ears around or kick the TV or something, or, or those who even watched a football game through that, you know, and interpreted the, the shadowy images on the other side. So I just, I think about that. And I think about how that weaving is for that to be created now is indicating that they're the artist is, that is a phenomena that is now that is ongoing. It's not something of the eighties or the, you know, the seventies or the sixties, when you had that, you know, it's now, you know, it's something that's recognizable now. So that's also showing how this is a um, coming from a population that still doesn't have, you know, like I have my, my Samsung smart TV that I bought for my mom, you know, <laughs> that's, I don't get those glitch screens anymore. All right. If anybody has any closing thoughts, happy to take them. All right. <laughs> Um, well, then maybe let's wrap up for today. So thank you, everybody, for joining us for this wonderful conversation. It's so lovely to see so many familiar names in the participants panel. I wish we could see you in person. <laughs> um, and my really deep and sincere thanks to Shannon, Marisa, and Rahul. It's a delight to see you all or to meet you for the first time in some cases. Um, and we so appreciate the time and the effort and your, your wonderful thoughts about this really timely topic. So thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.